0: Hello, this is Raki on the Sustainable Founders Podcast. Today I have Michael Kennard, a founder of Compost Club, a social enterprise with a focus on soil regeneration, food waste emissions and education. Welcome, Michael. Tell me about your brand, your product and why you believe you are a sustainable company.
1: Thanks for having me. So yeah, I guess the the brand it's it's kind of been a bit of a journey, but essentially what I do is I, uh, I collect food waste from local residents and businesses. I do that sort of in a in a secondhand electric van so there's not any kind of ongoing missions from doing it. and I also collect where well, I take deliveries of local tree surgeon wood chip waste as well. Um, and we also use biochar. they're the kind of main inputs and then I bring that that all comes onto my little site and we process that all into what I call a living compost. So it's about kind of trying to maximise the abundance and the diversity of beneficial microbes that are actually doing the composting. And so we don't use any fossil fuels on site. We don't use mains water on site. So it's about kind of trying to create something sort of beyond sustainable, but actually regenerative. So we're saving emissions from the inputs we use and then creating something with a real regenerative potential if it's used correctly on on soil The main focus was on soil regeneration from the beginning. And it's almost like all the the emission saving from the inputs that I use are kind of like a happy side effect of that because I'm in an urban environment. They're just, it was what's most abundant. There's food waste kind of, you know, we're all creating it, particularly if we've got children, I've found. So it just seemed like an obvious fit. And then as a result of doing that, I also do a lot of education now as well, whether that's sort of consultancy for people so that they can compost at home or on their, you know, their their farm or whatever it is and then workshops and talks and all sorts of things so kind of the actual what I do has kind of very much been emergent it kind of has unfolded before me really but that's essentially what what I'm about
0: so tell me what is compost and why should we care
1: so compost. I mean, I, I was saying to somebody. So I had a group of uh, year six students the other day, and I was sort of saying to them, prompted by one of their great questions. You know, composting just kind of happens in a in a real natural environment. If you think of a, a forest floor, trees will be dropping leaves and branches in the in the autumn and winter. Plants will be dying back, and that all becomes you know organic matter on the surface, and then on that kind of top layer of, of topsoil is very sort of active with all those microbes and so what they start to do is break down and particularly bacteria and fungi start to break down that organic matter and draw it down into the soil and that creates humus and that, that's kind of where basic fertility starts and then you have things breaking things down further and all these little microbes you get other ones coming in these like protozoa and nematodes they start eating the bacteria and fungi and eating each other and then they start what we fondly call the poop loop. So they just start pooping out plant available nutrients. So I often say to people when they're talking about, you know, fertility of, of often like a, a garden or an allotment or, or even a field. And we often think about having to apply like chemical fertilizers and things. But I always say to people, you know, if you think of the most abundant landscapes on the planet, nobody goes in there with backpacks of fertilizer. There is a natural cycle. And so what I'm trying to do in an urban environment with compost club is to reintegrate us as humans into a natural cycling system. Because for me, when I look at sort of observable reality, all that's going on is this movement of energy from one thing to another thing. And it's just things cycling. And when I connected through soil to that kind of natural nutrient cycling, these microbes are unlocking locked up nutrients from sand, silt, clay, and organic matter and just releasing it as plant available form. And before it was locked up, there's just this natural cycling, and then there's carbon sequestering and carbon cycling. There's water cycling. All of this stuff. I kind of discovered that that soil is essentially like the the foundation of life on our planet. Uh, ultimately, at one point or another, everything cycles through the soil, including us. <laughs> you know, uh, so it just seemed like something that I wanted to to get involved with and and do
0: because we sort of clean up our gardens, we rake away the leaves. I take it that we're kind of disrupting that cycle and we're are we taking away nutrients from the soil is that what's
1: happening potentially yeah i mean if so so i mean that's sort of what happens if you think on the the kind of the extreme of that would be a a commercially or chemically farmed field right so they're producing usually just one monocrop it grows and then it's just removed and then yeah essentially those nutrients that have been taken from the soil are not going back so you can either there's two ways of doing it in a a garden you can there's a really nice sort of permaculture method they just call it chop and drop where you just you know if if you prune something back you 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 cut off the bit that you're cutting off and just leave it on the ground and leaves and things you leave them if you if you are more inclined to be a bit tidier you can just have a compost pile where you kind of this is what i was saying to the the children the other day you know what what the the composting infrastructure that I had in front of them that I was sort of demonstrating, I sort of said, what we do with this in a city is we are replicating or recreating that functioning that happens on the surface in a forest. We're doing that in a little pile or in a, you know, in a compost tumbler or whatever it is. And then we apply the compost. So we sort of remove it temporarily, decompose it with these microbes and then apply it again. And obviously when it's broken down, it, it looks much tidier and you can, you know, Build beds with it and things, but yeah, essentially, you kind of part of what the problem that we're in with sort of mass agriculture is that we're 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 just taking from the soil and we're not giving anything back to it. And you know, the things that are being given to it are you know synthetic chemicals, and you know that they're they're actually detrimental to the microbes. They kind of you know set them back or kill them, so it disrupts these natural cycles. That if we if we sort of got back in line with and started working. Often say to growers, if we sort of saw ourselves as stewards over a piece of land and part of that ecosystem, rather than trying to sort of dominate over it and just you know exert our will over it, you know, and sort of fighting it. Often, often we're not reading the landscape and then applying our what we want to do to it with that in mind. We just sort of say, "Well, I want this to be like this," and we flatten it and we'll do that, and then it sort of floods down this end, and we say, "Oh no, that's a problem." But you know, you can you can work around that if you just get back in line with these natural processes and like with permaculture like the first thing is to observe the land you know for a season before you do anything because then you can you can make sure what you're doing works where you're doing it it just seems to make sense to me. I suppose
0: it has its own challenges a lot of them would be commercial you know just observing land for a year probably not very commercially viable for a lot of um, farms and I suppose it would be a risk for farms to kind of go back to natural ways and I can imagine that they would be thinking about what does this do to my crop yield can I take this chance or this risk and yeah it's interesting that the risk the safer option seems to be a tried and tested chemical version instead of nature itself that has been doing this on its own for years.
1: We're at an interesting time right because you know where we're at with this sort of commercial farming now is you know even the most kind of entrenched farmers in that method will will tell you that they're applying more and more of this stuff and they're getting diminished yields year on year so everybody knows it's it's it worked you know they call it the green revolution because there were you know soil was exhausted these chemicals came in after after the war because they could repurpose them and it did seem like a miracle you know but then what we've seen is the long term effects of doing that year on year we're kind of running out of time for doing that and often With those kind of things, they're often almost always salt based. So it's a bit of a strange when you think about what actually happens, you know, you apply like a year's worth of, say, nitrogen to a field. Firstly, no plant wants a year's worth of food all at once, anyway. But also then it rains, right? And then what happens to salt when it's with water? It dissolves. So it runs off. A lot of it runs off the field anyway. And then there's kind of off-field, you know, it pollutes our water as as well as what's going on in the field. So there's there's a there's multiple reasons why it's not so good to carry on with that but it the, the obvious reason is the fact that it's just not working and then the cost of these fertilizers has gone through the roof as well so that there's kind of there's there's been sort of brave pioneers that have transitioned to this sort of regenerative approach you know in, in recent years anyway and now there's a there's certainly a, an increased curiosity around it i went to the groundswell festival this year it's like a regenerative farming festival and Year on year, it's kind of grown, but this year was sort of exponentially bigger. And it was really interest a really interesting mix of people because you had people that have been doing it for a long time, people that are starting it and really excited, and then there were there were people there that were just kind of you know there to find out about it. And I, I spoke to a few guys that were just we're just you know conventional farmers, but we want to find out what this is about, and this all sounds very interesting and. When I start talking about like soil biology, if anyone's really curious, I'll go full soil nerd at them. And the feedback was really good. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of moved into this composting through transitioning into sort of doing a, a market garden growing. And it kind of blew my mind when I started to study the soil food web that as a grower, the, 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 the thing that, you know, I think 95% of our food globally is grown in soil. And as a grower, I didn't know how soil functioned. I thought it was some sort of inert sand silt and clay particles and you just you know depending on how much of each you've got that's your composition and that's that's the sort of geological element of it but actually there's you know in a in a teaspoon of healthy soil there are more microorganisms than humans on the planet more than kind of half the known species that we know about live in our soils it's the most diverse ecosystem that there is but strangely we seem to know more about the stars than we do about the soil. Like we're always looking up. You know, we we've got words like like dirt and muck, you know, and it's and it's literally beneath us, you know. So I think there's 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 yeah, multiple reasons why we've not really paid it enough attention. But we kind of often as humans, we we sort of do things when we're forced to. And as I say, farming's becoming an issue. I mean, one of the one of the things that sent me on this path was the quote: "We are, despite all of our kind of advances, we owe our existence to the fact that there are six inches of topsoil and and you know that it rains." And I kind of sat on that for a few days and or two days, I think. And the idea of Compost Club kind of emerged from from that. And I just thought, you know, I can't do much about the weather, but I could do something about soil. You know, I'm setting up this garden. What? How do I? How can I kind of? Yeah, create something. It was it was a weird time really. I guess um lockdown had just started. I'd I'd had a little boy born and I wanted to kind of demonstrate to him that we could have a positive impact on the world because that was what I wanted for him. And I sort of did this deep dive in like child psychology and like brain development and all these things. And basically the takeaway was, you know, you can kind of tell children all you like, but actually they're they're primarily learning by Observing how you interact in the world and what, how you talk and what you do and things. So I thought, ah, actually, I'm a hypocrite. I was working in construction. I'm an electrician by trade. That was what I did before. And so I thought, how can I kind of make a sort of form of activism my work and therefore do it all the time and sort of be of service to something that isn't just a paycheck, essentially? And so I thought, well, you know, if we are existence to soil, maybe, maybe that's the thing to to focus on and basically from that moment I've sort of lived in service to that.
0: Michael you're that was so inspiring. I love that you've explained this like you would to a 6-year-old because I feel like <laughs> that's probably my mental age when it comes to understanding soil so I really appreciate that. But the fact that there's more living organisms in one teaspoon of soil than people on the earth this is mind blowing. It's never my brain cannot really cope with that right now but that is insane. Um yeah. it's really yeah it's hugely interesting and then last that you have gone to find your purpose and something that is beyond a paycheck something that is a way of life now I'm quite curious about your journey as a founder because as a founder of a business you know you you're kind of every every department so tell me about obviously you've talked about your inspiration being your son and wanting to be a better example but tell me more about your journey as a founder And what that looked like, whether it's been challenging, what you've loved, what you've found quite difficult, because I think there's also quite a lot of courage. It's it's a leap of faith when you start a business. Yeah, it was. I mean, I feel like it.
1: It definitely is a bravery thing. I often say that to people now when they ask. I say, Well, you've got to be brave, right? But but actually at the time that I did it, you know, the lockdown from COVID had happened. So the the other work that I was doing had kind of stopped. So I had this weird kind of moment where for me I just sort of thought, well, this is maybe some kind of opportunity here for me to explore a bit. So granted, it you I would have to be even braver to do it. Yeah, you know, had I done it, but I mean, it's probably why I didn't do it before that, I guess. So, but yeah, that was kind of an aligning of different circumstances all coming at the same time. But yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, it, because of the time that it was, it was very much kind of emergent. It was just an idea. I was setting up this little market garden anyway, so I just suddenly devoted to that. And then it was almost like yeah, reading that quote, and then also finding in setting up that this garden, I basically found that good compost didn't exist. I couldn't. I couldn't buy good compost. I bought several different types of of compost that I was sort of asking around, what's the best compost? And before, like at that time, I didn't know about all this biology and stuff, just sort of basics. But just intuitively, I would pick up this compost when it was delivered and it would just be kind of lifeless. It would just be like black and just like one of them, it smelled like oil. It was horrible. What, Uh, What should good compost look like? So a good compost should be brown. It should be like like the kind of colour of an 80% cocoa chocolate. So dark but brown. It shouldn't be black.
0: So Michael, what would I see if I put commercial compost under a microscope versus your compost?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I've got a slide actually that I present at most talks that, that shows it because it's stark the difference, you know. Um so commercial compost, the way that it's usually made, it's very kind of mechanized. Lots of sieving and ripping and all of this stuff and like fungi particularly is very fragile. So what you generally see under microscope with commercial compost is like bits of bacteria. You might see like little tiny little bits of sediment, but no kind of very little anyway aggregation, anything together. When you compost well, like we call like like soil like that top layer humus, and when you compost well, that happens in the compost and you have all these microbes doing the breakdown. So it's it's less. I kind of just create the conditions for the compost to happen, and then all these little microbes sort of do it. I'm more a compost curator than a composter. I don't do it. They they do the work, and they work round the clock for free. They're the best. They're the best workers. Um, you just create the conditions for them, and they they'll turn up and they'll do their work. And so when you put them like a sample of my compost under microscope, you see all these dark aggregates that have formed, like humic, fulvic acids, all these humates. You'll see little re- little lines of beneficial fungi that are like pink in colour, and they have what they call scepter, so they're little lines. So it looks like a little string of sausages running through the sample, which you almost never see. I don't think I've ever seen that in commercial compost. And then you'll see, yeah, all these little bacteria bumbling around, protozoa, which are like little alien blobs, and there's different types. And then these, the, the best ones are like the, the nematode worms and they're just microscopic worms. So You zoom in like 400 or a thousand times magnification to see these little things and you can zoom into their mouth parts. So there's an LED that shines up through the microscope so they that you can see through them. So you identify what they are and what they eat by their mouth parts. So you can, you can, you can see them wriggling around and like eating bacteria and things. So you can zoom in and you can say, okay, well, this is a, this is a bacterial feeding nematode. He eats bacteria. That's cool. You get fungal feeding ones, which are also good. You get predatory ones that eat other, other organisms and each other, which is, which is all fine. They're all eating things and pooping out plant nutrients. But what you can get if it goes anaerobic or if you get the wrong conditions in soil and compost is you get root feeding nematodes, which obviously if we're trying to grow anything, we don't want nematodes eating at the worms. But the good news is with composting is as long as you, You kind of maintain the good conditions. You keep it oxygenated. You keep it moist, not too wet, not too dry. The, the, the beneficials almost always outcompete the pathogenic ones. So they'll, the, the predatory ones, like their favorite food is the root feeders. So they'll deal with them as long as you, you keep the right conditions. There's even, there's even fungi that create like a little lasso, which will grab other living microorganisms and ingest them. They're like predatory fungi. It's unbelievable. There's like this amazing world under our feet and in our soil Uh, this is insane you are making it sound like some sort of hollywood movie (laughs) it's like a little safari i mean i plan to like i plan to write a little book or something or do maybe an animation or something for kids about this because you can give all these things like little personalities they're all doing all this work it'd be great to create a little you know a, a kind of story that's actually you know capturing to make this accessible but there's so much going on that we, that we, particularly as growers, but I think everybody could be interested in this stuff. It's kind of crazy. And I just
0: never expected compost to be this interesting or exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, well, the thing is, we don't see it right. But I've kind of massively digressed from your question. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, so so I guess you might even have to remind me of the question.
0: <laughs> so I wanted to understand a bit about your journey as a founder. Um, was it easy? Was it difficult? What did you mm. find challenging about it? Cuz I know you lived a minimalist lifestyle off-grid for a while. You know, like talk to me about some of those experiences.
1: I used to think that as a human the best thing we could do was the least bad. Like that was the that was like the height of my aspiration. So I converted a loot removal truck and moved into that kind of got rid of all our stuff and sort of lived yeah like I was going to say pretty much nomadically, but it was absolutely nomadically. We kind of moved around, just yeah, creating minimal, you know, disruption and and and, you know, emissions and all these things. And I was kind of content in that. Or I thought I was, but during that process, I kind of started to the idea initially was that I would work a lot and save up for a deposit and and find a house one day or something. Or find a piece of land or something. But actually what happened is I started reading again. I picked up a book called Freedom from the Known by a guy called Krishnamurti, and it was just kind of, basically had me kind of questioning everything that I'd ever learned up until that point, really, and just framing everything in the context of actual tangible reality. What is actually happening? And, and, you know, what am I actually, you know, had all these various kind of learned about the fact that almost everything is kind of an idea. Like with our kind of intellect and our consciousness, we get wrapped up in these ideas, but it's it's all an idea. It's just that the the big ones are just ones that we all buy into, and therefore we create systems around them and we organize around them. But they are just ideas. So it cuts. I guess it kind of it was almost like a reempowering because I kind of realized you can just create a better idea, and then that very much I picked up a book by a guy called Buckminster Fuller, and his whole his thing in this particular book, he was talking about. Um, and it particularly resonated with me because I've been doing it for years. Like, rather than trying to appeal to current systems to change because I think we're not doing it right, create a new system that's better. And then get to enough people to recognize that. And you get to a tipping point where that just supersedes the old one anyway. And so that's again, part of the motivation and things. So yeah, that was kind of the start of the journey. And then I discovered I'd always been like a hobbyist grower, I always had an allotment and grew in the garden and stuff. Even as a, as a young boy, my, my granddad, I think we sowed a, a sunflower seed when I was very young. It's kind of like a formative memory. And I sort of say to people, you know, he literally sowed the seed in my brain. Like it was very. It's a very kind of tactile memory, even now. Like he was quite a big guy, big hands, very deep, not like me. He had a very deep voice, big guy. And he was just like teaching me this. And because they grow so quickly, every time I went back there, his sting was just like very dramatic. So it, and then I remember harvesting the seeds and we were bashing them on newspaper on the floor and there were hundreds of them. And he said, Look, this is like, this is like magic. We had one and now we've got hundreds. It's, it's, it's quite a moment, even now when I think about it, like just, it, it is magic. We can just turn this one thing into hundreds. It's, it's, it, that was like regeneration in being evidenced from, from very young. And so all these things kind of have been sort of set me on this path really. But in terms of founding, I guess it was more finding a bit of a mission and a bit of a purpose. And then because we live in the world we're in. It was kind of, how do I, I think I said earlier, how do I make this sort of form of activism my work? And then I can do it all the time because I've got to to pay. I mean, I I didn't have rent because I was in the van, but we had a little little boy on the way. We we didn't know he was a boy, but we had a little being who was going to be coming into the world. And my wife's very much into kind of natural birthing and things. And she said, I don't want to give birth in a hospital, but I don't want to give birth in a van either. So we're going to have to get a home now. So we did that with a couple of months to spare that was strange we moved into this great big house and we just had no stuff at the beginning it was very strange well I mean it wasn't a huge house but it felt like it Um, I was gonna say after
0: living a minimalist lifestyle to then move into a house yeah I I can understand that that would feel quite strange
1: yeah the first night we were like it just in a corner of the lounge and we had like the cushions that were on the little sofa seat that was from the van and a lamp and that we'd got this little table and we're just in the corner of one room and that was all we had. It was very, very strange, but we, you know, as humans, we kind of quickly spread out and acquire, especially when we have children. And so, uh, yeah, that kind of, that kind of happened. So yeah, it was, it was almost in terms of becoming a founder, it was almost necessity really. It was just, well, I've got to pay my rent still and we've got to eat. And I mean, obviously having a market garden, a lot of that was taken care of, you know, in-house, I suppose. But um, yeah, the rent was a big one. So it was sort of how do I? How do I structure this? And I'd, I'd worked for myself as a tradesman for a while, so I knew how kind of business worked, and you know all those kinds of things. So it was just about applying that to something that I was kind of—I I don't even know if passionate is the is a strong enough word, but it's just you know that soil and and has just got me. So so it was almost like, well, how do I do something then? Because. Rather than often, I give talks now to businesses about circular economy and 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 sustainability or or regeneration. As I often, I'm sort of presenting to them and sort of saying, you know, the language around sustainability is often, you know, I hear people saying, how do we be, how can we be more sustainable? And for me, that's kind of, it's almost like it's a euphemism for less destructive. Because if you're sustainable, you can't be more sustainable because sustainable just means sort of maintaining. So I often what I do is I present as three categories. So you're either destructive in what you do, which is having a negative impact. Sustainable is just kind of treading water in the middle. You're neither negative or positive. And what we can be is regenerative. And that's become another sort of side of the activism of what I do is kind of our now very much outwardly trying to demonstrate mostly locally, but, but you know, to whoever can see that actually regenerative is possible. So all the language around sustainability and getting to net zero that just kind of means getting to a place where we're not destructive and I think we should aspire for more I think we need to we need to be a bit again a bit braver and 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 a bit more ambitious because often I think as sort of humans again we we kind of we'll set a target and then we'll give ourselves a little pat on the back for getting a bit quite near it but actually if we don't get to sustainable we're all doomed <laughs> so I think we should be aiming for more because we can we can steward this place and we can, I mean, essentially we're like the sort of keystone species, right? So we can curate and dictate how things happen. And, you know, we've got this mad kind of intellect is what sets us apart from all the other living organisms here and this consciousness. So why not use it for something greater than, than, as I say, than just kind of consuming and and just looking at numbers in our bank accounts? You know, i, I I mean, I've promised my wife that at some point this will become, you know, something that really, really sort of works for us. But the, I don't earn what I used to earn as an electrician yet. But I'm very ambitious, um, and I want to kind of essentially, initially I was going to set up as a completely not for profit. And it was actually my accountant. He kind of said initially he said, uh, "Well, just just set up as a as a company initially because the paperwork's easier, and we can do that now, and you can convert to a not for profit later, and then." When it came to the time when I said, okay, I want to look at that now, he said, well, also like what you're doing is really interesting. And he's like, he's not interested in like gardening and growing and he's not really, he's not particularly eco-conscious, but he was sort of paying attention. And he said, what would be really interesting, he said, is if you could demonstrate doing what you're doing and making it profitable. Because he said, uh, from his perspective, if you become a not-for-profit, I would just dismiss you as another do-gooder doing some good and sort of taking funding in order to do it. But if you can make this a scheme that works and funds itself and then actually could be a profitable thing, so you could be a social enterprise. I didn't even know about a social enterprise. He brought that to my awareness. He said, you sort of exist in the middle. You might be able to get some funding, but also he said it could be another part of your activism. You're demonstrating business for good rather than you know almost being against business as a, as a sort of separate thing. So that, I said, okay, well, I'll try that. And that became very interesting. So that's been the sort of part of the journey as well. But it's an unfolding thing. There's always, you know, I have days where I sort of, I'm out in the rain processing food waste and I'm sort of thinking, oh man, like maybe I, maybe this, yeah, I've had days where I thought maybe this isn't going to work. But it feels like every time I've had that, the universe like pats me on the back and says, keep going. Like I'll suddenly get an email that says, oh, we want to interview you for this thing. And I go, oh, great. So it's almost, there's not been many of those days, but there's been, there's been a few. And every time something has said, nope keep going and just sort of it's almost like a kind of um you know like that thing in a film where someone slaps someone on the face to kind of bring them back to you know to the present and I'm sort of go, oh yeah that's right this is this is more important than just me feeling a bit wet and cold there's something there's something this is for
0: I was gonna say I've seen some of your videos of you turning the compost and it looks like hard graft I mean anyone who wants to get fit to just like start working with compost. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Sure, there are days. So I did a big day, knowing that we were going to be sitting down doing this today. I did a big physical day yesterday and I'm still feeling it a little, but I'm kind of used
0: to it now. I, I found what you said was so interesting about your either destructive sustainable or regenerative and you Mm -hmm. had very distinct ideas of what that meant and I'm always exploring what sustainability means in this podcast series and we talk to many different founders across many different areas and I suppose the one thing that comes across is it's hard to be sustainable in every area. We live in a life where unfortunately we use plastics, we have carbon emissions and the materials we use maybe they're able to be recycled but maybe they're not. So, there's loads of different areas of sustainability to consider. And if you try and say you're sustainable, each and every one of them, it's actually really hard. And like when yeah. you said that, that's just like maintaining the status quo, like, oh my
1: God, I felt I'm a bit, it's I'm very hard. radical. Like, yeah, I,
0: and it's good I'm, to I'm, be. But I did yeah. feel like actually, in the way that we've set up our world and our systems, actually, just to be sustainable, to stay neutral. Yeah, it's not easy. It's
1: really hard. It's such yeah. a hard grasp. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I've I've kind of I mean, I think I think I've upset people with that. Like in terms of so I've sort of said I've I've said like how I present that. And then yeah, similarly someone will come back and say, well, you know, there's some things that are necessary. Like so for example, in medicine, there's a lot of plastics that has to be used. But it's, you know, it's, it's literally a matter of life and death, those things. So I kind of, I, I, I just, I just, the first time I was asked it, I just, my response just snapped straight into my mind. And I just said, well, then you've got to question whether what you do is actually necessary. What are you bringing to the world? Is it needed? Is it useful? Because, you know. But
0: sometimes what you're bringing is better than the alternative. And that's yes. where I, because I, I'm the founder of a brand as well, and I always work to be sustainable. And before I started, I thought, how hard can it be? And then I started and I was like, oh, wow, this is hard, like getting yeah. hold of things, making things happen yeah. in a sustainable way and to the size and scale that we need it is hard. Yeah. And so then I felt like, actually, we're more sustainable than the alternatives. But then it also that can be pulled apart because you're like, well, who's your alternative? Who are you comparing it to? And more sustainable than the alternative, does that still mean you're destructive? And I think, yes. We are, I think, just the nature of being is, you know, we're always going to be using and consuming, and I can see why people would be upset. But equally, it doesn't take away from the honesty of what you're saying.
1: No, I mean, I just present it as as I see it, you know, and then yeah, it's still, it's still, it's not an invalid pursuit to do something that's still. I mean, like I say, ultimately, most activity is destructive that we do. So if you can do something better. Than, than what currently happens, then that's a good thing.
0: I think that's where I feel a lot of sustainable brands and businesses are, the genuinely sustainable ones. It's trying to change the direction of a big ship. It's slow and it's not perfect and it's not instant, but you know, the more we can turn the tide on it, the more things become available, the more acceptable it comes to do more sustainable practices versus destructive stuff. So it's a slow turn of, you know, a very big ship and we're part of that turn. So yeah, I, I, I kind of, I do see where you're coming from, but I also think it's a really big ask in the systems that, in the framework that we're now set up in.
1: Oh, hundred um, percent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. So you sort of mentioned previously that you were, oh, sorry, maybe not in this session, but when we were talking, you mentioned that you were very shy of growing up and that actually being the founder of a business Forced you to kind of overcome that tell me a bit about
1: what what that was about I guess as a kid I probably had like a sort of very probably very serious like social anxiety going on like I mean like I can remember often like my my mum just the other day mentioned about it Like, basically had like a an anxiety attack and couldn't they were going I think we we're going out for a meal somewhere and I couldn't go I was like I was under the stairs at home like in the hallway it was like open but I was like Under there, basically, like in a pile of coats and very upset. And they sort of laughed like it was like, oh, you're basically, I just grew up thinking I was very weird. And I didn't have the language. I didn't, I'd never even heard the word anxiety. I didn't know what that was. So I just, I just kind of thought I'm strange. I didn't know, I couldn't even comprehend why I didn't have the language for it. But it was to the extreme where like I couldn't telephone. Like before, there were things like, I don't know, just eat and deliver and stuff, these apps. I, you had to telephone for a takeaway. And depending on how I was feeling, I wouldn't be able to do it. I couldn't telephone for a pizza. For example, I remember saying to my mum, can you order me a pizza? And she'd say that her way of dealing with that was, no, you've got to learn. So you've got to do it. And I say, no, no, I can't. This isn't helping me. If you don't do it, I'm not going to be able to have it. And I'd end up just making myself something because I couldn't do it. Like, it became a real, it was a real thing that I had to overcome. And part of that Was so I trained as an electrician, and so I started to have to talk to some people that I didn't know. But it was always very awkward, and I didn't like it. And yeah, I kind of just got to a a place, sort of in recent years, actually, where I've sort of found through doing what I do, and people kind of just noticing it because I do lots of social media stuff and being asked questions. And and I guess it's maybe a confidence in knowing that I know about this thing now and people asking the right questions. And the more that I've sort of talked about it, it's almost been very kind of quite empowering, really, I guess. Coming out of that lockdown, somebody locally had this podcast and they said, oh, we're going to do a live podcast. It's going to be like a panel. Would you come and do it? And I just immediately said yes. And the reality of that didn't dawn on me until I was in this room. And there was only like, I think you're only allowed 30 people together at that stage. And they're all like sitting but one chair between them and stuff. And then I was sat on this panel on this stage. And I, I remember uh, reaching down to the table to pick up, I think they'd given me a bottle of kombucha in this this coffee shop we we're in, in, this microphone. I, I As I reached down, my hand was like trembling. And so I put my other hand onto it and picked it up with two hands to try and steady it. And I thought, and I'm sat in front of these. well, there's only 30 people, but I remember thinking to myself, oh, I hope nobody saw that. And having a sip of this drink. But what happened, we're up being asked these questions. And as soon as I started talking about what I do and about the soil, I like kind of relaxed. I felt myself relax into this stool that I was sitting in. And suddenly, and like people laugh and I felt like I was kind of sat with a load of old friends suddenly and really kind of enjoyed it. And I had this huge like I guess it was probably just adrenaline afterwards. And I was like, wow, when can I do that again? And it was like so I sort of broke the seal. And then since then, like basically you can't shut me up. I'm like the guy in the in the corner at parties talking about soil. (laughs) Um, Well, you've
0: done some impressive stuff. You've given talks and keynotes at the BBC Gardens World Live, the Royal Welsh Agriculture Society, uh, Winter Event, the Earth Summit. We obviously had Christabel read from Earth um, on one of our podcast episodes. You are at the Sussex Business Show. So clearly being a founder has forced
1: you to overcome some of the challenges that you have. Yeah, it's kind of just sort of woken something up in me, I guess, that yeah, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was always there and it was just kind of, yeah, dormant or like afraid to come out or something. I don't know. Or reserved, as I say, for certain people. And I sort of thought, oh, this is, you know, I can't expose. I guess it's like, maybe I was just afraid to expose myself. But actually, like I have this real security now in, in sort of, know if that's the right word, but like I kind of know what I know. And and because I, that's part of why um like being into soil is quite so exciting. As I say, we know more about the stars than the soil. So we're kind of learning stuff all the time. So when you can kind of get yourself to the edge of that, and every time there's some sort of new paper and then, but it's probably too sore and I won't go into it, but there's a thing called rhizophagia. I won't talk about it, but it's relatively new. And it's like, whoa, this is like mind blowing. Like there's bacteria that go into the root tip and start releasing, the plant starts assimilating nitrogen inside of its own root. It's like, wow, that's, really exciting like we when you when you think at the moment we're applying nitrogen fertilizer but actually if you've got this bacteria that's another way that plants are getting their nutrients that we've just sort of found out about it's really kind of exciting so it's sort of more I guess it yeah it is an empowering thing like but I love that that you've found your purpose in soil and soil
0: regeneration mm -hmm. that feels more important to you than your anxiety and it seems like it's forced you to like reprioritize and say okay do I want to be anxious or do I want to talk about soil? And the soil is more exciting than the anxiety is worrying. So, so you, uh, you crowdfunded to do your food waste collection. What's that experience like?
1: It was scary at first. So I, I had the idea to do it and I was kind of at a position with Compost Club where I got it to a certain size through just sort of basically buying infrastructure with my savings. And it was like, it, it felt like I was very close to a point where this could really work and just be my full-time job and, and that was going to be it. And I just thought, well, how do I, you know, what, what does an optimal site look like? And there were just principles, like it had to be human scale, it had to not use fossil fuels and all these things. And so like, how do I get from here to there? Well, essentially, I need this much money. And I was talking to one of my, he was one of my compost club members about it, really nice guy. And he, he said, well, I've, I've worked kind of filming and creating and sort of curating crowdfunder appeals before. Like campaigns, I'd be happy to help you. And I, I was just, yeah, quite scared of doing it. And I think that it was like a bit of an ego thing because it was like, well, if it doesn't work, will I look silly? Essentially, that was why I hadn't done it to that point. But he and just. And there's thought, always, like, I think, when you're a founder, there's always vulnerability because yes. you, you put your heart and your
0: creativity into something and then you launch it into the world. And there's that yeah. vulnerability of will it be accepted or will it be rejected? And because it comes from such a personal place. Yeah. Yeah, it's hugely terrifying, actually.
1: Yeah. And I, I've it's been a beautiful teaching because now I I fully embrace that vulnerability. Like like, you know, even in doing things like this, I'll I'll just talk about whatever you you ask me <laughs> So uh yeah, so we we I created this like script of what I was gonna say. So he basically said, describe this site. What will it mean if you're able to do it? You know, these these emissions that you'll be saving, the amount of food waste, you know, all these different things. So I, I've recorded myself on site at compost club talking to my phone and he said, okay, give me some feedback. I, I think I did it three times and it was it, at the beginning, it was very robotic. And he said, try not to be even reading it. He's got, you gotta, these have got to be things that you basically want to be coming from a place of kind of knowledge, authenticity, yeah, you know, and, 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 and as you say, vulnerability and just real. So it almost became like this little, quite sort of snappy little spiel that I had. But it was like just from the heart. That was what he said to me. He's like that one. That's just that's just how you said it to me uh, at the door when when we had the idea for this. So that's what we went with. I needed. It's quite. I mean, for me, it seemed like a huge sum of money. I need. I think it was twenty one thousand pounds. And if I got to that, it was kind of uh, all or nothing. So if I got to eighteen thousand, I wouldn't. It wouldn't go through because I needed to get to that much to unlock a ten thousand pound match funding. So that got me the infrastructure to be able to get to where I'm at now in terms of being able to process and also the electric van, which was really important because I was limited by the the little kind of car that I had. Um so it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing really. Just this amazing sense of like support. Because I think I've always had, I think it comes from my my little Nan bless her, That's what we called her little Nan. She was very short. My nan was like, although she was tiny, she was like the linchpin. She did everything super independent. Like She sort of lived in service to the family. She's an amazing woman. And I think I inherited a lot from, a, I spent a lot of time with my nan. So I think I sort of inherited this sense of, well, you've got to do it on your own, very stoic. And, and so I had that. So that was kind of an undoing of that, a sort of unlearning of that as well. So just being vulnerable, I need support here. If you believe in what I'm trying to do, I'd love your help. And just that overwhelming sense of sort of being held by a community, lots of people that were members who who sort of paid sort of in advance to become a member for a year was one of the rewards. It was kind of overwhelming. I check it and it's like, oh my goodness, it's like thousands of pounds. What's going on here? And then it got it was getting closer to the end, and there was still quite a bit, quite a chunk left. And I I was sort of resigned to ah uh, well gave it a good go, and I was driving along. The sort of the main sort of motorway from, from Lewis into Brighton. My wife was beside me and she said, Oh, you've just got an email. So she opened it up and she sort of went all kind of weird. And I was driving. She said, Pull over. And so I'm, I'm driving. She said, You need to pull over. It's about the crowdfunding. So I pulled over onto like off the main road onto like a gate, which was an entrance to a field. And she said, I can't read it. You're going to have to read this. And I read it. And basically, this guy had emailed me and said, like, This is amazing what you're doing. His mum had passed away and really sort of believed in this sort of stuff. And he was like, she's left me a you know, considerable amount of money. And I think she would love for some of it to go to support this. And it was just overwhelming kind of emotional. I was crying. It was like, he just said like, your crowdfunder runs till tomorrow, whatever's left before it runs out, I'm going to top it up and you're going to get to your target. And it was just like unbelievable. Yeah, pretty. It's kind of Overwhelming now, thinking about that again. Um, You've
0: given me goosebumps.
1: It was amazing. Just it to was that. Pain, yeah. So, yeah, just the reality of this thing and the fact that it, you know, you kind of never know whether you just think it's a good idea. And you know, maybe it's just you. It's that leap of
0: faith that you have to take. And I feel like the news can be so doom and gloom. And we forget that people are nicer and kinder and more generous mm-hmm. than the we are always being told and it's only when you put yourself out there and you're vulnerable and you reach out that you can give them a chance to prove that.
1: Mm, Well, I think that's our true nature, right? I mean, you look at where disasters and things happen, you know, people come together, people help each other, you know, what, what real benefit is there to, to be really well off, but everyone around you is miserable. I don't understand. I think that's like a, like a sickness of the mind that we have that's sort of rampant in our culture. But I don't, I don't subscribe to that you know it's it's not the right way I don't think.
0: So Michael you have a quote on your van can you tell me what it says?
1: Yeah so both sides of the van are on the doors it says healthy soil healthy plants healthy humans and that that is just in relation to the fact that that if we've got a fully functioning healthy soil then you have plants that kind of take up what they want when they want it in trace amounts. So they're able to kind of fully express genetically, but then also interact with those microbes, kind of in the same way that our gut does with our food. We we're sort of learning, and like people call the gut like the second brain now. We know that I think 90% of our serotonin is produced actually in our gut, not in our brain. So what we're eating is like critical. I, I often say to people, we are we are literally a reflection of the soil that our food was grown in. So so when you've got all these microbes in the soil, the plant is releasing sort of little trace chemicals out of its roots into the soil to attract these microbes. So you really want them in there. They're genetically evolved to do that. And so then, yeah, as I say, they'll be more nutrient dense as a result of growing in a healthy soil. So when we're eating that food, we're getting those nutrients, but those microbes will be on that food. And that informs the microorganisms in our gut. Some of them are the same, some of them are very similar. So we're kind of, it's almost like rather than taking a probiotic, you just eat natural food. You know, again, we're co-evolved with these plants and with soil. So, you know, and, and as as plants are releasing those what we call exudates into the soil. So they're sort of taking sunlight energy and they're taking in carbon dioxide. They're breathing out oxygen. And then they're using a lot of that energy to grow and produce the 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 fruit or the, you know, the seed. But then depending on where they're in succession as a plant, they're releasing up to forty percent of all of its energy into the ground. And part of that, I guess, is because they can't do what we do. Like we kind of don't really invest in our environment so much because we can just move to the next place. Plants can't move, so they have to invest. It'd be kind of good for us, I think, as a society. If we didn't move around so much, because we might invest in our local environment a bit more. We got to be more like plants. But yeah, ultimately, yeah, you know, healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy humans, and then ultimately healthy planet. Because those, you know, that's carbon going into the soil, and depending on how you grow, if you don't dig and release it all again, you're keeping that carbon in the ground, and then you get you get another benefit is you get naturally pest and disease resistant plants. So because they're getting everything they need, they're also signaling with little chemicals above ground whether they're a healthy plant or whether they're vulnerable and they're an easy lunch. So you know, pests will be detecting that. So if you've got really good biology in your soil, really healthy plants, really strong, and your your neighboring field has been applying chemicals and their their plants are sort of stressed. I often think about when you're chemical farming It's like the plants are alive, but it's like they're in hospital on a drip. You know, they're sort of being kept alive rather than fully, you know, no one's going to get out of their hospital bed on a drip and run a marathon. They look okay, but, you know, physically they're not feeling great. So the pest will kind of potentially fly over your field to get to the neighboring struggling ones because they can detect, you know, where the easy lunch is. So there's other sort of benefits. So you, you, you don't need pesticides and. But herbicides and fungicides and, and fertilisers. Essentially, if you just harness that natural rhythm, natural cycles get these microbes doing their thing.
0: It's so interesting because often we vilify farmers for using pesticides and for not being organic. But actually, when you speak to farmers or people who work the land, they're in a really difficult position. I think food and crop prices are so low that they're not true costs. So they're always forced to have maximum yields. They're always forced to work with minimum manual labor. And so it then starts to affect the type of things that they can grow and it starts to create more monoculture. And then it's like a downward spiral. Maybe it's us as consumers because we need to start paying more, paying a fair price for our food, which in a cost of living crisis is to say food prices go up. It's the opposite of what we need right now. So many people can't afford basic food. But actually, when we start to look at healthy, nutritious soil and crops, it sounds like that is what needs to happen so that farmers can start having not monoculture, but multiple things growing on their farms. I think in the system that we have right now, it feels impossible.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's yeah, there's so many things to unpack there. I mean, there's, obviously there are government subsidies. So one of the things that I kind of see could be very effective in in terms of weighing up economy and ecology and trying to get the balance of the two things right, you can almost incentivise things that are boosting soil health, biodiversity, nutrient density, less chemicals by rewarding that. Because we can do that. We do already do that. We have subsidies in farming that go to certain practices, so we could get the right people in, in charge of that. And, and, you know, and almost pay for that subsidy rather than through everybody's taxes. You tax the chemicals use, you tax the bad practices and you incentivize the good ones. Uh, what that transition wouldn't take long then to, to, to do. But also I'm a big advocate for things like there's CSA, which is community supported agriculture. So you you pay. So we do that here. We pay every week for a veg box that comes from. I mean, we can go to the farm. They have days where we can go and harvest our own veg box in the you know in the right season. They don't use any chemicals. They, they you know they're they're completely they're, they're sort of beyond organic. And yeah, if you can find that locally, and um, there's a really good. We have mentioned the Earth platform. There's a one of the recent most recent courses on there is a guy Abel Pearson, and he's he's got a course all about. Community-supported agriculture, in terms of him as a grower, but how you engage with that as a consumer as well, and it's it's surprisingly what we found is it's surprisingly not way more expensive actually. If you can, yeah, it's amazing to know the person growing your food and to go to where your food is growing, and it is about for me. I'm, a, I'm a, 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 she's she's also on their platform. Helen and Norberg Hodge is all about localization and local economies. So in that. You have resilience and you have a diversity of things growing where you are. So you actually wouldn't need to have these massive production anymore. You can make things smaller scale and 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 you know, do things more local. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, for localization. It's part of sort of in the DNA of Compost Club is the idea that, you know, we can have these little compost clubs everywhere, create a green job for everybody where they are, collecting the food waste locally to them, the, the wood chips locally to them. Processing it the way that we do, and it's kind of yeah. I I think that the 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 future, if we are to have one, a successful one, we need local resilience. We've already seen like the impact of sort of recent events in terms of the cost of food, the cost of fertiliser, how how fragile these kind of global supply chains actually are. We need resilience in the same way. Again, like everything for me, I, I can relate to soil. You know, if we have a resilient soil, it will it will absorb and retain more water. If we look after it right, instead of keep ploughing it and stuff, which mitigates the 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 impact of flooding and drought. So we we need to yeah just just harness back in again to 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 again natural cycles. And we're kind of evolved in communities and tribes. You know we're not supposed to be exposed to all of these people and things. So I think it'd be very good for us actually to to tap back into to our local communities, which is again another beautiful thing I've been able to do with Compost Club is kind of. Yeah, really, really tap into certain people locally that are really engaged in the sort of stuff that I do, and businesses as well that actually, as you say, they they maybe do have certain practices that aren't regenerative or aren't even sustainable. But but by uh, this, for example, I've got a juice bar that I work with, and I collect a lot of juice pulp from them every week, and it, it means that it's able to make their their business, you know, a bit more sustainable. Because it used to just get taken away by a big, you know, probably get incinerated or something. You know, best case, maybe anaerobic digestion. But now it's becoming local living compost that they, they, they top up all their planters in their courtyard out front. And then obviously the rest of it, you know, some of it I donate to community gardens locally and stuff. So it's, again, it's building in local resilience as a result of their, their, their juicing, which is really cool.
0: So, Michael, what next? Where, where do
1: you go from here? So in terms of what's next, I mean, I've been asked to do a a panel for a talk at Kew Gardens in March um, next year. And there's like a summer camps thing, which is like with children and their parents, which I think is in Wales next year. And there's various other things that are already starting to come in. I basically want to stop saying no to these things and start just reaching more people. So I think it's sort of into the spring, I'm going to look at bringing somebody on board. So... It was part of the the vision was to sort of create these human scale sites and and create green jobs for people that have kind of meaning, pay at least like a good living wage to people and do that through yeah saving emissions and regenerating soil. It's kind of all the wins. So I think the next step is to to do that. Bring somebody on board so that I can still do some of that because I love doing it, but actually I can kind of facilitate all the the other stuff as well. So if somebody says you know I mean I've just started I've, I've Launched like a, what I call like a compost in schools campaign. So I've got two local schools at the moment, but there's, there's lots of them that are interested in, in having me set up some composting infrastructure in their school and then teaching, you know, a couple of members of staff. And most schools have like a sort of eco committee of kids now. So the idea is we kind of teach and empower those children to compost at school. And the optimal thing, if we can get the funding, would be to have like a big, in vessel composter like I use, but it's just it's quite a beautiful thing. Like the food waste goes in, the wood chips go in. And there's just a big crank that you kind of turn. So like the kids can do it. And it doesn't use fossil fuels. It's 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 independent, this thing. So we could get schools composting all of their food waste like from their canteen. Maybe that's your next crowd fund. Yeah, well possibly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. And then yeah, we get the kids doing that. And then the that compost necessitates a garden if they don't have one. And then they get growing as well, and then they're producing food that, if they don't eat, it goes in the compost, and they just grow up in school with this natural, you know, circle of kind of life essentially. And then they can go home as little agents, and when their parents want to throw a banana in a banana skin in the bin, they say, "Hey, whoa, 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 why don't we compost that?" So part of that as well is I come into the school and I keep on. On top of it as well, so it's not just on the teachers. I can come in and and you know keep it keep it going. You know, if, if a member of staff leaves, I can teach the next one. I could come in and do an assembly, whatever they want. Could do like a full soil nerd session and bring in my microscope if they want. You know, whatever whatever it is, I think but that's. Also,
0: I think it it also starts to put practical use to just something that academic all the time. It starts to get childrens their hands to it gets them mm-hmm. physically involved instead of sat at a desk all day. And I think. Yeah. that's one of the other things that make it sound so appealing.
1: Well, part of that—that that learning that I did in terms of like child psychology and brain development—you know, they children absorb. I mean, all of us do, but but particularly children absorb information so much more efficiently when they're in a playful state of mind. One sunflower seed with my granddad had such an imprint on me at such a young age. Imagine the impact that that. I mean, I often think like, imagine me meeting me now when I was a kid. Like that would be amazing. (laughs) But that's that's my kind of thing: is to try and be the person that I that I wish I'd met. You know, a a friend of mine said you could just be an electrician again, and you'll earn more money. And I was like, but I have to go to bed at night, and I've got this little internal voice, and it'll be like, dude, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) I don't think I could. I don't think I could actually do it.
0: I think it would be a downgrade because the passion that you have for what you're doing now is so evident. And mm. to go back to doing something that perhaps you don't believe in in the same way, it sounds like a downgrade in life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always liked my work. Like, I like working with my hands, and I I love like stepping back at the end of a day, or you know, or several hours, whatever it is, at the end of a project, and looking at it and going, "Wow, like, I've manifested something physical." Like, I've always liked that, and I, so I was never unhappy in my work. But I've just found something else. Like, I I did this. Um, there was this. What was it called? The um, a social entrepreneur index or something. And I joined this thing in Brighton called the Good Business Club. I was just like a member in that. And somebody had nominated me in this thing. I didn't even I'd never even heard of it. It was the first year that I was doing this seriously. And I got this email saying, Oh, you've been selected as like a judge's choice award for this this thing. Can we do like a Zoom interview? And it'll be shared on this like award thing. I was like, oh, okay. He said, so what would your advice be for any new social entrepreneur who's starting out or, or somebody who wants to? And I thought, well, that is me, but it was like a real imposter syndrome. And so I was very much put on the spot. And I just said, well, I guess my advice would be, like the thing that came to me is find the thing that lights you up. Because if you can, if you can find that thing, whatever challenges present, you can, you'll overcome it because it's, it's what's lighting you up, you know, that you're not, you'll be able to, you know, we spend so many hours of our lives in work so if we can find a a work that it, that is giving us energy, I, I said some of my work used to be what took my energy and now it's where I get it. You know, I go to work and I, as you say, I might be turning to compost and be physically exhausted, but I am charged up, you know. <laughs>
0: well, Michael, I, I've loved you sharing this personal journey of yours. You've literally gone from the anxious guy who couldn't order a pizza yeah. <laughs> to fi- finding your purpose in soil regeneration. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much, whether it's the organisms living in a teaspoon of soil to having like faith and hope in the kindness of people. This has really been just a wonderful conversation. And for anyone who wants to also buy compost for you from you, they can also join the compost club and have, I'm guessing, compost deliveries.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like people, people locally, they become members. So that's yeah. like a monthly subscription thing. So I collect their food waste. And- I use repurposed plastic tubs that used to get thrown away from construction. So there's there's no sort of virgin plastics there. So they're just, yeah, repurposed, upcycled, I guess. And then members every spring get compost back. And then the surplus we we sell and people can buy that sort of anywhere in the UK. So it goes in a beautiful little Hessian bag. And it's almost like this little card bookmark with how to use it. That's just, I just hole punch it and tie it on with a bit of jute. Uh, that goes in a cardboard box, paper tape, you know, or dress label. that's just paper. So there's no plastic in it either as a as a product. So that can go out to anybody and you don't need a lot of it. You only need like commercially for that, for to get the biology doing things in your soil for you, you only need like a ton per acre. So I just sell little like five litre bags that treats like 10 square metres of growing space. So yeah, or, or I mean, you know, if people want to compost at home, just reach out to me and I'll help you do it because I think it needs to sort of happen everywhere. You know, it's part of the thing that I had is I can, I can physically compost for so many people, but the real impact is actually going to be felt in empowering other people to do it themselves at home or in their communities or in their schools. Scale it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the idea is more important than the actual thing. So it's just kind of, thanks for having me here. It's like being able to get this out to people is a beautiful thing.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Michael. This has been a wonderful and inspiring episode. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you.